Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, well, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really exciting founder turned investor. He actually now, he went to the other side of the table, but nonetheless, he's actually done it multiple times, very successfully so. And we're gonna be talking about the full cycle of being an entrepreneur, the thought process, going through the idea, incubating it, building a high performance team, you know, going through the whole thing, you know, all the way to the exit. And I think that you're going to find his journey quite remarkable and very inspiring. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Harpinder Singh. Harpy, welcome to the show today. It's great to be with you, Andrew. So originally born and raised in India, north of India. Give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Life was awesome. I, I grew up in Chandigarh, which is happens to be one of the most planned cities uh, in India. And life was great. I, I grew up playing field hockey, cricket, flying kites, and uh, doing all the stuff that uh, my kids don't do today. Um, and I studied computer science. I did uh, my undergrad in CS at one of the IITs. And then I came to the U.S. for a PhD in high-performance computing. And what got you into computers to begin with? You know, I wish I had a great answer uh, at that time. Uh, I think if you talk to people who went to the IITs in India, you take this big entrance exam, which is like hard, and then you get placed according to your uh, according to your rank. And uh, computer science was emerging. One of my cousins was doing it, so I thought it was a great field. But frankly, I did not know a lot about it going going into it. So eventually, you came to the U.S. and you came for a PhD program. Uh, how was the uh, the experience of all of a sudden landing here, the land of opportunity, the American dream, you know, all of that good stuff? It was it was different. Um, coming to the U.S. was the first flight I ever took uh, at the age of, I think, 20 or 21. Um, so as you can imagine, everything was different. Everything was new. Ordering a sandwich was intimidating because in India you get one white bread and, uh, you know, you get one cheese, which is called paneer. Here, you order a bread and they ask you, like, you know, do you want, like, rice, sourdough, French, this, that? And do you want this cheese or that cheese? And do you want red pepper, yellow pepper, whatever? And I didn't know half of what any of that meant. So it was just quite um, kind of transformational. It took me, like, a couple of months to get a hang of all this. So in your case, I mean, you became a software engineer for a few years. And then it sounds like you had an idea of uh, really going into it, you know, as an entrepreneur, being, going into the business side of things. But you thought that it was better to go via the MBA uh, route and you went to Stanford. So yes. why, why did you take, you know, why did you take that approach? Why going to Stanford, you know, instead of like maybe going out of, out of, out of, out of your comfort zone and, 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 and going at it, you know, as an entrepreneur, why did you feel that an MBA was what you needed at that point in time? Yeah, no. Um... Great question. And I was a software engineer for about four years. I was at Oracle. Um, and, you know, I really loved being a software engineer, uh, but I felt that, okay, I had kind of maxed uh, in terms of what I was going to learn and product managers were telling me what to do. And I'm like, you know, hey, I don't need you to be telling me what to do. I, I want to sort of go do that thing myself. So uh, I think the immigrants on this sort of show would kind of appreciate this, but 
I was in the middle of my green card process. So I couldn't just leave and go start a company. And going to going to Stanford allowed me to kind of keep my green card active and use my time to learn something different. So I was super keen on starting a company. I, I had only been a software engineer. So I felt that kind of kept my green card going, gave me a way to go learn many, many different things, meet a different uh, group of people. So that's what led me to Stanford. And frankly, that's where I met my co-founders. And uh, it was it was a remarkable uh, kind of a transition in my life. And obviously, Stanford has played a, an incredible role in your life, you know, not only as a student, but then also you became a professor, you know, which we're going to talk about in just a little bit. Now, in this case, as a student, you know, tell us about that process of getting the band together, you know, for building what would end up becoming Fiber Tower, which started with Project Shed. You know, it was it like a codified language for what you guys were thinking you know, about doing or what? How did that come about? When I was at the GSB, you know, it was, you know, towards sort of the end of dot-com days. And uh, uh, GSB is a very, very entrepreneurial place, but that time was kind of special. Many people wanted to start companies. And, you know, I was vetting some of the ideas I had. I ended up pitching these ideas to a couple of people who ended up becoming my co-founders. So, you know, in that process, um, you know, we liked how we were thinking and we kind of came back, came, came together and we were working on an idea and storage infrastructure. And frankly, three weeks before we graduated, we realized we were too late to the market. Um, so we ended up killing the idea. None of us had cared to apply for jobs and this and that. So we're like, okay, we don't have a job. Uh, we're about to graduate. We want to start a company together. So we shook hands and uh, uh, decided to spend six months together to incubate something and see if we come up with something that we're excited about. Um, so I had three other founders, Scott, Eric, and David. And the code name we gave ourselves during the search process was Project Shed. So for Scott, Herbie, Eric, and David, so we would basically call people and say, hey, we are, we are from Project Shed. We are a team out of Stanford. And, you know, we are researching this and that. Would you talk to us? So that, that was sort of how the team came together. So how did it go from idea to an actual business? You know, what was that incubation process like? You know, it was, um, it was quite a journey. There isn't a script on how do you go about incubating an idea so we had to kind of come up with our own process. And what we did was we figured that we needed to go deep and uh, um, build enough of a mastery in a few fields. So we ended up focusing in four different areas. We all took an area each and we would go and talk to product managers and engineers. And we would basically ask the question, hey, if what you're working on today is successful, what problems does it create 24 months out? And that was a great way to have a conversation around the emerging problems that people saw. Um, so we spent about three to four months doing that. And we had a long list of problems and ideas that we identified through that process. And we had come up with this matrix. We called it like the attribute, uh, attribute matrix that we, that we used to basically score all our ideas. And it had things like, you know, how passionate are we about the idea? Can we create a large business? Does it have barriers to entry, IP defensibility, things like that? So through that process, we um, we realized that wireless data was just coming out at that time and it was going to explode. And we, uh, through some conversations with people at Nortel, we realized that there wasn't enough capacity at cell sites and that was going to be a real bottleneck. So there was all this equipment coming out. There were all these handsets coming out and we saw this uh, big 
kind of bottleneck in between. And that's what led us to start a company in wireless infrastructure. So what ended up becoming the business model of Fiber Tower for the people that are listening to get it? How were you guys making money? So it was, um, we were essentially providing very high-speed uh, capacity that was reliable and cost-effective at cell sites. So when you use your cell phone, your cell phone is talking to a cell site, and all that traffic has to be taken to what is called a switch. Um, and that link between the cell site and the switch didn't have enough capacity. Um, it was expensive. It wasn't very reliable. So we ended up building a combination of fiber and microwave network. And our business model was we would charge for capacity, just like you would pay for you know, getting fiber cable to your house now. Uh, we would, our customers were all the big wireless carriers, so Verizon, T-Mobile, AT&T Wireless, and so on. And we deployed our infrastructure in 13 of the largest markets in the U.S. across thousands of sites, and they would pay us um, for capacity at these cell sites. Now, you guys started the company back in 2000. I mean, what a wild time to uh, to start a company, no? Because, I mean, you guys uh, did push this thing, this thing through, you know, over the course of six years until you got the exit. But, my God, I'm sure that you learned quite a bit on, on cycles. So we were incubating during 2000. We were fundraising in early 2001. And uh, not only the dot-com was in trouble, but some of the telecom uh, companies were in trouble. And nobody wanted to fund a capital-intensive play. And we ended up raising like $225 million uh, over, the course of the com- uh, over the course of the company. So yeah, we had to kind of get fairly resourceful and creative about how we build the company. But there were also a lot of positives. Um, I think the distraction level comes down um, and uh, we were able to hire really high quality people who were committed and were doing a startup because they really wanted to be in a startup. So in fact, both the companies I started were during down times and uh, I think they are some of the best times to to start something new. Why do you think they are the best times to start something new? I think the, the noise goes down uh, in the ecosystem. Um, it's... I think the fad of, you know, hey, I just need to be in a startup kind of also goes down. So people that you're hiring uh, really want to be in a startup. So I think hiring becomes easier. Um, and I think there is less noise overall when you're talking to customers and partners and so on. So first company, first exit, Harpy. You know, that's quite a, a remarkable, you know, uh, achievement. Now, in this case, you know, it was a, it was an exit of close to, I think, a billion, 800 million was reported. So what was that acquisition process like? You know, what was, what was the journey of going through that m Is it that crazy roller coaster of emotions, as they tell that, uh, that it typically is when you go through an acquisition? How was that like? Yeah, it was, it was quite an eventful process, let's say, in that, um, I think it happened that the problem we picked became a very strategic problem. As the wireless carriers were rolling out their networks, they really needed this infrastructure to work. And we needed more spectrum and we needed more fiber uh, for our solution to scale. And we ended up actually getting an offer from the largest fiber company um, in the US at that time. Um, And that led to another offer from a company that held the biggest spectrum footprint in the US. So we ended up kind of being put in play and with offers on both sides. And it was eventful because we had both financial VCs, but we also had 
strategic investors. We had large tower companies that were investors in us. And the tower companies didn't want to sell at all. They're like, you know, this is awesome. It makes my cell sites more attractive because you bring high-speed infrastructure to those sites. So keep on building. Why would we sell? Um, so it was quite a... It was quite an eventful process. It was quite a roller coaster. And, uh, um, you know, I think through six to eight months of getting everybody aligned, it ultimately resulted in an exit. So make us an insider in there. You know, the moment where you're signing, inking the deal, you know, 800 yeah. million bucks, your first company, you know, mm -hmm. an immigrant, you know, that came here, you know, to, to the U.S. from India. How did that feel like? What was going through your mind? You know, honestly, there are so many ups and downs in in building a company. And especially when you're building a capital intensive business, you're like, you know, okay, am I going to be able to raise the next round? Or, you know, there's once or twice when we felt like we nearly ran out of money. Um, so it was frankly just mixed emotions. I felt that we were selling early. I felt that we should keep on building, but it was, at the same time, it was also somewhat of a relief that, you know, okay, we built something valuable that somebody cares about and, you know, it'll get a lot more funding and resources and this will become big. So I think to your point, I was, I was frankly not even thinking about the monetary side of it. I was just kind of like pleased that we started something and, uh, you know, there was, there, was, uh, there was sort of a good outcome. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. So as they say, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. You know, and in this case, you know, you went, you know, back into it, you know, with Slice Technologies. So what was that, uh, what was that journey like of uh, now, obviously the second time at it, you know, you have the the experience already of, of really, and the clarity and the visibility into what the full cycle of building, scaling, financing, and exiting looks like. And also you did it with the same co-founding team, you know, with Slice, you know, once again, you know, the band, you know, gets back together. So what was that process of you guys taking a look at everything and, you know, perhaps, you know, like figuring and testing ideas and then all of a sudden thinking this is the one? We felt we worked very well together as co-founders. We 
paid a lot of attention to the culture we built and the mission we were on. And I think we had a great time. And when we talked to our employees, they felt that, you know, it was sort of this special opportunity uh, and they were in a special place. So we exited and we were like, you know, hey, let's do it again. So we all took some time off. We all took about a year to year and a half off and then went through a similar sort of a project shared approach where we went through an incubation process. It took a little bit longer this time. It took, uh, instead of it taking six to nine months, it took like almost 12 to 18 months. I think wow. we were a little bit, yeah. Uh, I think we had done it once, so uh, we had cast a wider net. We were looking at more things. I think we were perhaps more distracted uh, this time around, but we went through a similar process and we identified this need um, around building a company that would provide market insights for e-commerce. So we built a data analytics company and uh, I love my co-founder that it was just a real kind of a privilege to do it again with them. So what was that point where you guys hit product market fit? I think it took us about two to three years of iteration to hit product market fit because we needed data at large scale to figure out um, what people buy online and what insights it would tell. So we needed data and then we needed to be able to um, extract this information, classify it, create a taxonomy, and then make this data usable. So it took us about two to three years of figuring out how do we get data at scale, how do we extract insights. But then once we did that, I think 14 of the top 20 CPG brands were our customers. And uh, I think we were solving a real sort of a need in the problem market. And how are you guys making money with Slice? So um, we created this business, which was market insights for e-commerce. So think of it as like, you know, uh, I think many people are familiar with Nielsen. So think of it as like Nielsen for e-commerce. So our our customers were, you know, large brands, uh, big travel companies and so on. So they would uh, pay us for either licensing data insights um, so, so either either raw data that they would use, or they would they would buy insights from us. So, for example, if you are uh, Procter and Gamble, you want to know, hey, how how is Dollar Shave Club affecting Gillette, um, or what does subscribe and save mean for my business? Should I have the same packet sizes and pricing as what I put in stores at Target, and so on? So, we were helping the leadership teams at these CPG brands and their boards think about what does e-commerce mean for them. And in 2015, there was a shift of roles. What happened there when you became the CEO? Yeah, so uh, we were acquired by Rakuten, uh, which is the largest uh, e-commerce player in Japan. And uh, uh, my co-founder, Scott, was the CEO. And uh, um, his son actually had a medical issue that he needed to go attend to. And uh, we had worked very collaboratively through both our companies. So it was a fairly sort of a smooth and kind of a unnoticeable transition. So uh, so that's when I became the CEO. And in this case, I mean, for Slice, you guys raised 30 million bucks. So obviously the experience now with investors, I mean, you guys were well-suited, you know, and, 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 and well-versed on that, you know, given your experience with Fiber Tower before. So what did you do differently when it came to um, raising money from the right people with the right reasons? You know, so raising money became easier um, because there was some pedigree, there was some proof, but everything else almost didn't become easier. You know, getting customers is still hard. Getting product market fit is still hard. Uh, you know, recruiting 
uh, all these NLP engineers that we were recruiting uh, against Facebook and Google and so on was still very hard. So um, I think there were certain things that became easier around fundraising and how we thought about culture and uh, um, we knew how to scale businesses. So we knew what it took to build sales team and go to market and so on. But then there was a lot of just, um, you know, hand-to-hand combat that we still had to figure out on the product uh, and product product market fit and pricing and, and things like that. And obviously, as we're talking about people here, um, I want to ask you, what about building a high-performing team and culture around it? You know, like, what did you learn, you know, about about that? So um, that was something we actually greatly prioritized because of the way we were formed. So um, because we were a team that wanted to work together and didn't have an idea. So frankly, one of the first things we did before Shared agreed to work together was we talked about what kind of a company do we want to create? Uh, what would be our values? Uh, what would the company look like? So given that it was kind of rooted in that, I remember even before when we got our first term sheet, one of the first things we did was we had been working together for six to nine months. We sat down and codified and said, okay, what kind of a culture do we have? What kind of a culture do we want to have going forward? So we were, frankly, very intentional about the culture we created, about the people we hired. My my co-founder, Scott, he had actually built two public companies before um, we got together. So he, he always talks about the story that um, you know, as his companies grew, people got hired who he looked at and they, he said, you know, hey, why are these people here? So we were very intentional about uh, the culture and who we hired. So we did two things, actually. One is we rolled out this thing, what we call feedback. This is something we learned at Stanford. Uh, it was about interpersonal dynamics and providing feedback to each other so that we can work well together and also learn from each other. Um, and that's been, I think, absolutely incredible uh, in how we built both our companies. It it kind of brings up issues in this without escalating them, and uh, you know creates this environment of high performance and low ego. Um, so we were able to use feedback uh, in both our companies, and frankly, it, it resulted in low attrition rates. People said what they wanted to say. And we we built a trusting and a very collaborative culture. So I think just knowing and being intentional about what we were trying to create and the culture we were trying to create, and also knowing what type of people we hire, I think that just served us very well in the long run. So the company Slice ended up being acquired by Rakuten uh, and for an undisclosed amount, but uh, but a good exit. Uh, I guess the question here that um, that I have for you is, you know, given that it was the second time around that you guys were going through an acquisition, at what point, why did you think it was the right time at that moment, you know, to do the transaction and when is the right time to do the exit? So, um, obviously, I, I went through this with both my companies, but... Um, I also see this uh, across many investments we made. I think with Slice, uh, we actually got an offer from one of the big tech companies here in the Valley. Um, so we had been working with them and they loved it enough that they're like, okay, we want to acquire you. And that actually kind of got the ball rolling. 
and we ended up saying no to them. But Rakuten is another company that we were working with, and the CEO of Rakuten really leaned in and he said, "Okay, um, you know this is what it means for for my business, and uh, um, you know I'm going to let Slice do what it's doing, but we really want this to be a part of Rakuten." So it actually we weren't looking to sell. It ended up actually being getting put in play just like with Fiber Tower, and it ended up um, in a sale. Um, I don't know if there is an answer to what's the right time to sell. I think as a founder, you need to be open about that every time you're fundraising. Uh, I think investors and founders should pause about, you know, okay, what's the right next step, you know, based on what we've learned and the product market fit, do we keep on building? Do we sell? Um, I think we, we always thought about, you know, taking it all the way and taking these companies public. But I think things happen along the way and, you know, markets change and you learn about your customer base and so on. So I think it's best to be um, sort of open-minded about those things. Now, in your case, you know, once the company uh, finalized the transaction, you know, basically for you, the next chapter was a combination of academia, uh, Stanford, you know, going back at it on the professor side of things, but then also going on the other side of the table as an investor with innovation endeavors. So, what an interesting blend there, Harpy. Yeah, no, I think um, uh, teaching has been fantastic. I teach two entrepreneurship classes, startup garage, and formation of new ventures. Um, and through that, you know, we get to sort of work with some of the most entrepreneurial students at Stanford. So I think that's that's a treat in itself. And then being in the investing side, I think it's such a privilege in that you know you get to work with the best minds and uh, sort of be on the cutting edge of what people are thinking about so i think it's 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 an amazing combination so i, I really uh, am grateful for both of those now with innovation endeavor you have been involved as a first venture partner and now as a partner you know for about 14 years i mean this is the um investment vehicle where eric schmidt you know is also a part of uh, for those that they are not familiar with the name eric schmidt you know the ceo of uh, Google, now Alphabet, and uh, I mean, definitely one of the uh, brains, you know, that allowed for Google to become what it is today. So I guess, tell us about how big is Innovation Endeavors and what kind of companies do you look at? Yeah, so um, Innovation Endeavors was started about 13, 14 years ago by Eric, as you said, and one of my partners, Dor Berman. Um, And we are on our fourth fund, which is a $500 million fund. Um, and we invest in early stage companies, uh, so series A and seed stage companies. And we invest in two areas. One is applied AI. Um, so AI applied to some of the big physical world problems. So we've done a lot in areas like supply chain, logistics, construction, life sciences, industrial, climate, areas like that. And the second area is enterprise infrastructure, so all the enabling technologies. So this is machine learning, tooling, data infrastructure, cybersecurity, areas like that. Um, And we are usually backing founders who have deep technical insights about a large space. And we work with them on product market, go-to-market. So we like being early, and uh, uh, we have a lot of operating experience on the team. And uh, we love to sort of uh, meet founders even before they have an idea. So now you've been on both sides, you know, and obviously you were able to understand, you know, the pain and and the the journey um, of of really being the operator 
on the other side now, you know, obviously taking a look from the other side, you know, with a different lens, you know, at the, perhaps, you know, like some of the key ingredients, you know, to really make it happen and what it's required. So what are some of those patterns that you look for? You know, what are like the absolute must that they, when you see those, you know, coming together, you're like, I, we got to make an investment in this company. Yeah. So um, I think borrowing a lot from what I, what worked for me in my company is one is the team. And, you know, is it, why does the team want to do what they want to do? Is it a collaborative team? Is it a team that can scale and grow over time? So that's, that's obviously number one. Second, um, I think one of the things that I got lucky with, and I thought we did right in both our companies was we picked large markets with strong tailwinds. And so wireless infrastructure and then e-commerce and data analytics. Um, so we look for hopefully uh, founders that are thinking about large markets and how they can transform them. And we're looking for trends that would support them and uh, it would support this ideation and iteration process if they have to pivot and uh, find their product market fits. So those are the um, two things we're looking for. And like I said, we're looking for a technical insight around why what they're doing would be 10x better uh, than what was possible before. Are there fundamental advances in technology or raw materials um, or AI data that is now available that allows them to look at a problem a different way? That's incredible. So I guess hey, for the people that are listening, Harpy, that you know, we'd love to reach out and uh, say hi. What is the best way for them to do so? Uh, really simple. My email is harpi, H-A-R-P-I, at innovationendeavors.com, or they can reach me at harpy.sync at uh, stanford.edu. Easy enough. Well, Harpy, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Alejandro, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.